My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 114, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, 2 Samuel 11 to 12, 1 Chronicles 11 to 12, Psalm 32, and Psalm 51. 2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messengers, when you have finished giving the king his account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Don't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at our servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. 
David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this has been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord said, Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. And you did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead. You get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David 
comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. David took the crown from their king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stone. David took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. David did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then he and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. First Chronicles 11 All Israel came together to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, even while Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord your God said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, he made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, as the Lord had promised through Samuel. David and all the Israelites marched to Jerusalem, that is, Jabus, and the Jebusites who lived there, and said to David, You will not get in there. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. David had said, Whoever leads the attack on the Jebusites will become commander-in-chief. Joab, son of Zeruah, went up first, and so he received the command. David then took up residence in the fortress, and so it was called the city of David. He built up the city around it, from the terraces to the surrounding wall, while Joab restored the rest of the city. And David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. These were the chiefs of David's mighty warriors. They, together with all Israel, gave his kingship strong support to extend it over the whole land, as the Lord had promised. This is the list of David's mighty warriors. Jeshoabim at Hakamanite was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahoah. One of three mighty warriors. He was the David at Pasdamim when the Philistines gathered there for battle. At a place where there was a field full of barley, the troops fled from the Philistines, but they took their stand in the middle of the field. They defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Three of the thirty chiefs came down to David to the rock at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphim. At that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine line, drew water from the well near the the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because they risked their lives to bring it back, David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed, and so he became as famous as the three. He was doubly honored above the three and became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benai, son of Jehoadai, a valiant fighter from Kebazil, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. 
And he struck down an Egyptian who was five cubits tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benai went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benai, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in great honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. The mighty warriors were Ashahel, the brother of Joab, Elahanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shamoth the Herite, Helez from Pelonite, Era, son of Ekesh from Tekoa, Abizir from Anathoth, Sibekai the Hashuathite, Elah the Ahoahite, Maharai the Nephahithite, the Netophiathite, Heled, son of Banah the Nephathite, Ethai, son of Rabbi from Gibeah and Benjamin, Benai the Pirathonite, Hurai from the ravines of Gash, Abiel the Abarathite, Asmaveth the Beharamite, Elihabah the Shalaboanite, the sons of Hashem the Gizanite, Jonathan son of Hagi the Herorite, Ahem son of Sakar the Herorite, Eliphal son of Ur, Hefer the Mekurathite, Ahijaj the Pelonite, Hezro the Caramelite, Narai son of Azbai, Joel the brother of Nathan, Mibhar son of Hagri, Zelek the Ammonite, Nahari the Barathite, the armor bearer of Joab son of Zerahua, Iria the Ithrite, Garab the Ithrite, Uri the Hittite, Zabad son of Ahalal, Adina son of Shiza the Reubenite, who was chief of the Reubenites and the thirty with him, Hanan son of Makkah, Joshaphat the Mithnite, Uziah the Hashtarathite, Shema and Jael son of Hotham the Ararite, Jadal son of Shimri, his brother, John the Tizite, Elil Mahazite, Jerbai and Jehoshaphat, the sons of Elnam, Itma and the Moabite, Eliad, Obed, and Jezeel the Mezabite. These were the men who came to David at Ziklag while he was banished from the presence of Saul, son of Kish. They were among the warriors who helped him in battle. They were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or to sling stones right hand or left handed. They were relatives of Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Ahazer, their chief, and Johash, the sons of Shammai, the Gibbethite, Jazeel, and Pelite, the sons of Asmaveth, Berakah, Jehu, the Anathite, and Ishmai, the Gibeonite, a mighty warrior among 30 who was a leader of the 30. Jeremiah, Jazeel, Johanan, Jojabad, and Gedarathite, Eluzai, Jeremoth, Beliah, Shemurai, and Shephatai, the Herophite, Elkanah, Eshaihai, Azrael, Jojer, and Jashobim, the Karahites, and Jolah, and Zebediah, the sons of Jeremiah from Gedor. Some Gadites defected to David at his stronghold in the wilderness. They were brave warriors, ready for battle, and able to handle the shield and spear. Their faces were the faces of lions, and they were swift as gazelles in the mountains. Ezra was the chief, Obadiah the second in command, Eliab the third, Mishnah the fourth, Jeremiah the fifth, Atai the sixth, Aliel the seventh, Johanan the eighth, Elizabeth the ninth, Jeremiah the tenth, Maccabani the eleventh. These Gadites were army commanders. The least was a match for a hundred, and the greatest for a thousand. It was they who crossed the Jordan in the first month when it was overflowing all its banks, and they put to flight everyone living in the valleys to the east and the west. Other Benjamites and some men from Judah also came to David in his stronghold. David went out to meet them and said to them, If you have come to me in peace to help me, I am ready for you to join me. But if you have come to betray me to my enemies, when my hands are free from violence, may the God of our ancestors see it and judge you. Then the Spirit came on 
Amasai, chief of the 30, and he said, we are yours, David. We are with you, son of Jesse. Success, success to you and success to those who help you for your God will help you. So David received them and made them leaders of his raiding bands. Some of the tribes of Manasseh defected to David when he went from with the Philistines to fight against Saul. He and his men did not help the Philistines because after consultation, the rulers sent him away. They said, it will cost us our heads if we desert to his master Saul. When David went to Ziklag, these were the men of Manasseh who defected to him. Adnah, Josabad, Jediel, Michael, Josbadai, Elihu, Zilathai, leaders of units of thousands in Manasseh. They helped David against raiding bands, for all of them were brave warriors, and they were commanders in his army. Day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. These are the numbers of the men armed for battle who came to David at Hebron to turn Saul's kingdom over to him, as the Lord had said. From Judah, carrying shields and spears, 6,800 armed for battle. From Simeon, warriors ready for battle, 7,100. From Levi, 4,600, including Jehadah, leader of the family of Aaron, with 3,700 men, and Jadok, a brave young warrior with 22 officers from his family. From Benjamin, Saul's tribe, 3,000, most of whom had remained loyal to Saul's house until then. From Ephraim, brave warriors famous in their own clans, 20,800. From half the tribe of Manasseh, designated by name to come and make David king, 18,000. From Issachar, men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do, 200 chiefs with all their relatives under their command. From Zebulun, experienced soldiers prepared for battle with every type of weapon to help David with undivided loyalty, 50,000. From Naphtali, 1,000 officers together with 37,000 men carrying shields and spears, from Dan, ready for battle, 28,600. From Asher, experienced soldiers prepared for battle, 40,000. And from east of the Jordan, from Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, armed with every type of weapon, 120,000. All these were fighting men who volunteered to serve in the ranks. They came to Hebron fully determined to make David king over Israel. All the rest of the Israelites were also of one mind to make David king. The men spent three days and there was with David, eating and drinking for their families and had supplied provisions for them. Also, their neighbors from as far away as Issachar, Zebulun, and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys, camels, mules, and oxen. There were plentiful supplies of flour, fig cakes, raisin cakes, wine, olive oil, cattle, and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord." and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from the trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eyes on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which has no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and brittle, or they will not come to you. Many of the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 51. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquities and cleanse me from sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressions your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Where do you feel yourself putting the blame when you read this story in 2 Samuel 11 through 12? Is it Bathsheba for her activity, location, or time of day? Is it because she was bathing in what we believe from our culture to be an inappropriate place, like outside? Is it David for coveting, for standing on his roof, for committing adultery, and perhaps rape, and then murder? Is it both? Is it both of them? In any case, we all typically have a visceral reaction to this story, especially after we've been learning about all of David's righteousness, right? But we were seeing hints, I think, a little bit with the wealth collection and the collection of of wives, because if we go back to Deuteronomy, we know, oh, that will be the shortcoming of human kings. And sorting out who did it and who's to blame is a normal reaction, obviously. It's a normal reaction, particularly from an individualistic culture where we want to assign blame who's responsible for what. It's also interesting to note that in the ancient culture, honor and shame were more important as a cultural value than individual rights, moral conviction, and responsibilities. It seems from reading the story, it wasn't an individual sense of moral conviction that initially led David to accountability for his transgression. It was actually a sense of like being called to the table, a loss of honor, shame that was like really brought on him by Nathan telling him. That required him to respond. And everyone, including Nathan the priest, knew what he had done. This was not a private affair. This was everybody knew what he had done. And to take someone else's wife and have her husband sent out to his death would require justice if we go back and remember the laws. If God is the true king and his words, his law is the guideposts, then David totally missed the mark here. In Christianity Today, an article from last summer, Dr. Carmen Imes, an amazing, one of my favorite Old Testament scholars I work with, wrote an article titled, Blame David, Not Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan did. In the book of Samuel, three key voices say he's the guilty one, not her. 
So that's the title. So interesting. Dr. Irons discusses the complexity of this mode of storytelling and how the reader will make unjustified assumptions from their own cultural zeitgeist or norms to fill in the gaps. Some see Bathsheba's allegedly public bathing as seducing David, and therefore they see David's adultery as somehow maybe consensual because she brought it on or something. But others point to the power dynamic of David as king and refer to it as rape. Dr. Imes points to the culture, which was a patrilinear society, making the firstborn male the head of decisions, including the prevention or responsibility for adultery. She refers to the Ten Commandments, specifically Exodus 20.14, and while we understand them to apply to all humans and women are capable of sexual sin, in that culture of the Ten Commandments would have been understood to have been directed upon delivery to the men or the man of the house for them to yield or restrain their power for the sake of community, not to steal one's wife or horse, if you remember those verses, even if the opportunity presented itself. David knew her husband was on the battlefield at his command, and he took his neighbor and military servant's wife. Dr. Imes describes how there really isn't a better illustration of a story that fits the bill of the law we read about in Exodus and Leviticus. Bathsheba was literally David's neighbor's wife, in addition to David's military practice of being celibate while at war. She was totally off limits to him. This is why her husband Uriah would not sleep with her, was pulled back from battle, because 1 Samuel 21, 4-5 makes it clear that battles and missions from the king were perceived as religious or sacred and sexual relations were prohibited during this time. Think of the solidarity, too. Dr. Imes points out how Uriah had more restraint, even when drunk, than David did when sober. By contrast, David failed to lead his troops and take the mission seriously. Because if you notice later, David was heading his troops. But here in this story, he's not. He's walking around on his rooftop. Instead, he's staying home and preys on the war widows, as she calls them, or women left home alone next door. This is a clear act of self-exile towards pleasure. Remember, there's really only two types of self-exile, the pursuit of pleasure over God or the pursuit of rightness. I think of Dr. Timothy Keller's book, The Prodigal God, which is talking about also the two sons, the young son who runs off for pleasure and wants his inheritance early, and the son that stays home and wants to be right. There's so much we'll talk about about that, but that's what I mean when I say there's really only two ways that we exile ourselves. It's the pursuit of pleasure over God or the pursuit of our sense of rightness and our sense of wisdom, the tree of knowledge over God. Knowing with certainty and our wisdom putting it over God, which is just a problem, right? The priest Nathan told David that David had despised God's word. Okay, I'm going to read an excerpt of the article and link it in the show notes because I couldn't possibly make it more concise or self-reflective. Okay, here it goes. So the question is, didn't Bathsheba seduce him? The first thing to note is that she is not bathing on the roof, 2 Samuel 11:2. It's David who is on the roof, a normal place to be in the cool of the evening. He ought to be at war with his men, but nevertheless, there he is, bored. Why is she bathing where he can see her? Well, in David's day, the city has no indoor plumbing, obviously. Bathing normally happened in the public. 
And if Bathsheba is bathing in a public pool, then she can hardly be implicated for immodesty if everyone else is doing it. And if she's bathing in the courtyard of her own home, her bath is actually more private than normal. In fact, the text never says that she was naked even. And nakedness is an obvious inference or assumption, but it may not necessarily be true. And we know from various points in culture and time that a lot of people had to take showers or baths outside, and they had different kinds of like costume dress or ways of doing it to try to keep themselves clean while still being modest. This was no ordinary bath either. She was purifying herself ritually following menstruation, 2 Samuel 11:4, which you read. This practice indicated that she was a pious keeper of Israelite purity laws and also that she was not already pregnant, which is important to the question of parentage. David's sexualization of her religious hygiene should raise an eyebrow or two to us readers because David, you know, has a messenger's bringer. Does she have a choice? Her husband and her father are both soldiers under his command. No one can can refuse the king in this culture, and maybe not even in regular king cultures, right? Bathsheba's only words in the entire story are, I'm pregnant. David has put her in a predicament. If her husband returns and finds her pregnant, she could be stoned for adultery. But the situation is not her fault, and David knows it. David's plan A is to bring Uriah home from the front to make him have sex with her and kind of blame the pregnancy on him. It's still early, right? So Uriah may later think it's his own when he piously refuses because, again, if you're at war, you're not supposed to be sleeping with anyone. David has him killed and takes Bathsheba into his harem. For me, the clincher is this. The narrator is unequivocally blaming David in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven. The prophet Nathan is also unequivocally blaming David in 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 2. And Bathsheba is never blamed by anyone. Even David himself doesn't blame her in this. If you remember, there's other stories like that too. So... How do we apply this? Nancy Gunthrie describes how many try to bring sexual purity and how to, you know, leadership advice from this story when maybe the story is actually more personal than that. Seeing ourselves in David and what happens when we are given power and privilege, something bigger than the specific acts of David. Another large theme to draw is that David, like all the rest, did fall because even a king cannot rule in the place where Jesus needs to be, like Adam and so many others. He did fail, and I know it's super disappointing. Our view of David is somewhat crushed here, or totally crushed, by the end of chapter 11, and he doesn't even seem to care that others were hurt and died. I don't know if you picked that up, but it, it's there, right? He doesn't seem to care. Dr. Woodhouse describes David as a callous brute. What David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord, which is what the end of chapter 11 says in the original language. Nothing else but the word of God finally drops him. Dr. Woodhouse says David really wasn't a willing participant in remorse. And all David actually said when he finally conceded is, I have sinned against the Lord. Even in the Psalms, when we're reading those, his heart and it's all about him and the Lord. He doesn't even seem to have a lot of, I mean, spoken in the text remorse towards killing someone, taking someone that he shouldn't have. The most uncomfortable words, Dr. Woodhouse says, is Nathan saying, God has put away your sin. It seems unjust and not enough, right? But Dr. Woodhouse says the egregiousness of the sin done by David, the, I love that, the egregiousness of the sin done by David is matched by the profound depth of grace by God. We are uncomfortable with both the egregiousness of the sin and the depths of the grace. God went on to bless the marriage of David and Bathsheba 
that's kind of wild. Dr. Woodhouse says if this happened in his world or context, you know, and he's a pastor, he could never see himself doing that. But it's important to know David will experience consequences even though God covered him to restore the relationship. David and Bathsheba lost a child. Dr. John Woodhouse and Nancy discuss how some people who have experienced or try to respond to those who have experienced a miscarriage or uh, the death of, of a child might see this as God's punishment. It certainly may feel like one, but this situation cannot be wide paintbrush or umbrellaed into the reason for children dying or miscarriage. I certainly agree with that. Remember when we read John 9 and the people asked what the man or his family had done to cause him to be lame? And Jesus said it had nothing to do with that, but it had to do with God's purposes. So for me, the point is, yes, consequences may be a result of sin. But they also are not. And for us to assume or project onto others and infer that we know God's purpose is rather self-righteous in my opinion. And I cannot help but see it as harmful and not helpful. Remember what I said before, Dr. Tracy Berg, a theologian from APU, described for me at an International Biblical Research Women's Conference that sometimes the question isn't what did I do wrong, but what, what does God want me to see in and through the situation? So in practice, I try to reflect on both questions and not become overly obsessed with knowing the answers with certainty. I consider, I reflect, but ultimately I lean into my knowledge of God's goodness, His faithfulness, what He's doing, and how He's called me to be a part of it in a story that is still unfolding in a kingdom with no end. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.